welcome to the Coaching Uncovered podcast. My name is Brent Davis and I'm the host of the podcast and this is my podcast where I get to talk to coaches about coaching. And we had these two gentlemen on a couple of weeks ago and they did such a great job. We've got them back. So Scotty's back to talk to me again. Thanks for coming in again today, Scotty. Thanks for the invite, mate. I'm getting used to this now. You are. You're becoming a bit of a pro on the podcast tapes, so that's that's a good thing. And we have golf coach extraordinaire with us again, Nick Belowski. Thanks for coming in, Nick. Very kind of you, Brent. Thanks for having me. We're going to have a great chat again. And we had Scotty do the last couple of intros on the topic, but I'm going to throw it to you today, Nick, to introduce our topic of chat today. Okay. So in today's episode, what we're going to talk about is talent development. So this is part two of the episode that we did on talent identification. Today, we're really going to dig deep into talent development um, from a golf coaching perspective, but also a physiological development perspective as well. And I th- it'll be a really cool topic because we, we, we touched on some parts of it when we did the talent ID chat. And um, I think we can really dig deeper into how we actually coach these skills, how we actually build on the stuff. So we've found this golfer that's that's sh- showing a bit of talent, a bit of, bit of golf skill, a bit of physical strength, bit of um, some good skills in those areas. How do we work on those and how do we how do we build those skills to improve that golfer? So we might start with you, Scotty, from a physical perspective because um, that's um, your area of expertise. So we've got this golfer that's shown some good testing with the talent ID test that we discussed a couple of weeks ago. How do we start to build on those, those skills, on, on those test scores and how do we start to improve those areas? Yeah, so normally with a, a testing, a physical testing battery, we'll be looking at balance, flexibility, strength, power, and maybe a test for endurance. Um, and part of what I'm doing with my PhD study is to actually try and weight those variables a little bit. Um, <clears throat> the, other, the other way to weight it, I guess, is that power is really one of the more important ones. So we might have a three-segment test for that, maybe an extra one. We might have three or four power tests. Balanced, you can test quite effectively with a single test. It's also not quite as important for the younger golfer. It's just not as correlated to any of the, the performance measures like club head speed or handicap, for example. But we want to have it in there. Um, possibly it becomes more important for the older golfer. So what the, the importance of all those physical attributes might vary a little bit depending on the type of golfer you've got in, in front of you. Uh, women and men, slightly different. Junior golfers versus adult versus older, it can vary a little bit. So, um, but essentially, provided we've selected the correct tests and we know that they're all important, we can then basically use a radar plot, which is where um, you know, you've got basically all of the tests in a circular uh, chart and you can basically see where the player's strengths and weaknesses are compared to golfers that are similar to them. So if you've got a, a 20-year-old um, single-figure golfer, you compare them to, 20, to, to people that are just like them, and you can basically see where their main strengths and weaknesses are. We want to maintain those strengths, and we want to bring those weaknesses up. Um, and I, I, part of what I'm doing with my, with my research at the moment is trying to understand some of the intricacies of the connections of those tests with say, technical factors, for example. So if the coach tells me that this is something they're doing in their swing and we find that there is a direct physical connection, then we can emphasize that a little bit more in their program as well. So trying to individually tailor uh, programs to 
make the body more coachable, the, the golfer's body more coachable by not having so many glaring weaknesses or limitations is, is the overall goal for me. Okay, that makes sense. Um, okay, Nick, so just quickly with you, let's touch on how we can we can start to work on, so with sort of a golf skills perspective, we've, we've identified some, some golfers that have tested well in the skill sets that we had. Um, how do we start to set up their training? Yeah, so I think the, the first thing to note is that because they or we've identified them as being talented, um, it doesn't mean that the fun stops. Okay, so we still need to try and have as much fun as we can with with our programs and the activities and exercises that we get our athletes to do. So you've got to keep that front of mind. Um, and golf is a game that's obviously played out on the golf course. So we need to make sure that with our training program that we have for these talented golfers that we still give them a really good opportunity to go out and play on the golf course and build their toolbox. So I'm not necessarily getting to go out and compete in competition, playing stroke play and, and that type of thing. I'll be getting to go out on the golf course and playing some different types of games where they'll be going out and hitting different shots or using a limited number of clubs or making sure that they're you know missing every green in regulation so they have to you know chip and putt and work on their short game or playing a game of drawback where they would you know uh, approach the hole, hit it to say six feet, and then they've got to draw it back at club. So I'll be doing lots of different fun and engaging games and activities um, to try and keep it fun, but also develop their uh, their toolkit. And then we'd want to start to be looking at some of the stats um, of the golfer as, as well. So they'll we'll have a really balanced approach still at this point. So we're not going to be focusing too much on any one particular thing, but we're going to start to keep stats and record stats so we can start to adjust and tailor the training as we, as we need it. So, so the program's going to still be balanced, but it's going to start to angle in onto something in particular. So if somebody's struggling with their approach into the green, we would then develop a program to try and work on that. Or if somebody's struggling with short game or a particular aspect of their chipping, we'll then tailor a program to try and work on that. So that's what we'll try and do after we've identified a talented athlete. Makes sense, makes sense. Now, Scotty, you quickly touched on and you were talking before about the differences in training you would do with a, with a female golfer and a junior golfer and a, the, the, the types of golfer you've got standing in front of you. So what – what type of program would you set up for a junior golfer and how would that be different to a, to a, to a grown up, so to speak? Yeah. I mean, look, I've, I've worked with um, kids uh, who are, you know, keen, keen golfers from the age of eight years of age. Now there's not, there's only a certain amount that you want to be doing with them. And, and for a lot of these uh, kids of that age, it's actually um, posture. So posture is quite an important one. Body awareness, um, again, it, it's the sort of thing that there's only so much I can do when I'm uh, teaching them or giving them a program to go away with. It would be much better if they were doing something something on a weekly basis like gymnastics uh, or something similar to that at that age. I think that's really important. Um, but then as, as they become, I guess if they're sort of in their early teen years, um, we can start to get them doing compound movements, just not necessarily with much resistance just to build that, uh, start their training age. I mean, essentially, it's going to take, it takes a couple of years before you can actually get people to do things in the gym that are really going to be, I guess, optimizing their time and the, the reward that they get for their effort. So the earlier we can start that two-year process, the better really. Um, yeah. So uh, typically, you want to start doing 
decent loaded weight work once they've finished their their main growth spurt, you can start getting into it. Yeah, that was kind of where I wanted to go. Is um, is there a specific age, or is it just based on that on on that spurted growth? Yeah, it's mostly based. It, it is very individual. The maturation process can vary by at least two years, and it's by two years between boys and girls as well. So, for girls, it could be anywhere from sort of eleven years, maybe up to fourteen for some of them, and for boys, it could be anywhere from twelve to even sixteen. So, um, you know, I remember my my best mate. I was always two or three inches taller than him. And uh, but year ten came along, and he had the late the late charge, and he's now six foot four, towers over me. Um, so you know everyone's an individual, and so for him, he would have had to really start his his gym training, which by the way he hasn't. Um, uh, uh, you know a lot a lot later than what say I did. Um, yeah, so it can vary a bit. It's all about that main growth spurt being completed. So after they've done, after they've gone through that growth spurt, is there a specific type of training that you want to move them into really quickly, or is it again personalised for the person? Well, yeah, t- typically um, after the main growth spurt, the a young athlete will be quite. Um, I guess they they can lose a little bit of coordination. They can be quite gangly. They can be quite stiff uh, because the skeleton has grown so quickly. The muscles and the tendons haven't quite been able to catch up. So there can be a loss of flexibility. So doing things that improve their proprioception. Um, the, the one that's always sort of thrown around during the actual uh, growth spurt is rock climbing because there's no, <coughs> excuse me, that's my protein bar coming back. Um, include uh, Things that uh, don't include a lot of force or, or load or impact. So it's still going to be good for their joints because they can get quite sore during the growth spurt. So after the growth spurt's finished, you're still dealing with a little bit of that loss of flexibility. But basically doing uh, compound movements where you're taking them through a full range of motion and you've just got a well-rounded program, it's quite appropriate to start that. Makes sense, makes sense. Now, throwing back to you, Nick, from a golf skills perspective, um, you you spoke a bit about games-based training that you use with your, with your golfers. Um, is there a particular age that you may stop using that or is something that you would use all the way through? No. Excuse me. Sorry, uh, I'll try and use it all the way through. It's it only just occurred to me recently that I think um, as golf coaches we're doing a pretty good job of training juniors and and doing games based training and you know game situations, game awareness, all that type of thing. But then for whatever reason, it's like a, a button gets hit when somebody turns eighteen, and then we start to go into um, blocked repetitive practice, and it gives somebody the right to stand on the range and just pump balls all day. So uh, I think with our with our adults we need to train them actually a little bit a little bit more like juniors so actually doing game based training doing activities uh changing up the scenario quite a bit not just staying on the range and hitting balls for one or two hours straight actually moving in sequence through all the different activities that you can do so um, yeah, the, the, I don't think it changes too much or it shouldn't change too much in my opinion. Obviously, the activities might get a little, little bit more complex um, and the challenges might be a little bit harder, but I think the coaching principles should remain the same. Yeah, I tend to be on the same page with that. I think we, as golf coaches, myself included, I've been guilty of being uh, searching for the perfect pretty golf swing with my students as opposed to their Ability to golf their ball and get it in the hole. So yeah. I think um, we can be very focused on technique sometimes, and we we go we drift 
away from that um, that scoring those scoring skills, so to speak, which is which is great for game based training can, can well, train just, those skills. Just to add as well, how often do you hear people say at age twenty five plus I actually putted better when I was fifteen? Yeah, mm, it's, so, it's so common. I, I think you know that really gets back to how they train. You know when when they were practicing and practices in air quotes because they were really just having fun with their mates. They were hitting shots and putting from all sorts of different angles and putting with the back of the putter and putting left-handed and mm. just really building a good rounded diverse toolkit. And then for whatever reason, they got went down the path of, no, I have to stand square. Everything needs to be perfect. My eyes need to be mm. over the line. And they just use that, that kid like flair and instinct for, for putting. It's, we hear that far too often, don't we? Yeah, can I just jump in there too? Because uh, from a skill acquisition point of view, there's a lot of evidence to show that if you want a skill to be stable, you need to be able to execute it in a number of different variable ways. And movement variability within itself is is actually a good thing because it shows that a player can actually adapt. And uh, you know the other, and then the other part of it is how much you're engaging with the target itself. And if they're thinking all of these technique things as they become a serious adult you know, pro golfer uh, versus the creative kid, um, you know, maybe they've lost that that sort of laser focus on the actual target, which is the creative part, of, you know, the right and the left side of your brain. You're moving from the right brain where you were when you were a kid to your left brain when you're too analytical as an adult. Um, so, you know, I sort of think there's a bit of technique involved with that and skill acquisition, but also um, the target and, and uh, the way you're using your brain. It's going slightly off topic for talent development, but I think it's important nonetheless that you see a lot of these, uh, call them talent pockets, and I know there's actually a technical term for this, where there'll be hotbed. a hotbed. It's a hotbed. Yeah. yeah, but there'll be a hotbed or a concentration of talented golfers or talented athletes coming from a particular place. And it might not necessarily be the the coaching or the actual technical coaching aspect, it's probably more to do with that there's a lot of talented athletes in this particular space and they're competing against each other and they're practicing in that variable way that you just spoke about. You know, they're hitting hitting shots and doing things that they shouldn't be doing, but it's developing their, their toolkit and the whole squad or group of athletes is improving because of it. Yep, yep. I I really that games based coaching really appeals to me as a coach um, from a golf skills perspective. Is there a way that you bring that into your physical training, Scotty? Games based type type training as opposed to just being inside of the gym all the time. Uh, the answer is no, not really. It's a bit it's a bit different. It's sort of not as much skill involved. I mean. Yes, from the point of view of I always, if I could get a group of um, a group of athletes together, um, and we need to do some decent intensity training, it's a great way to get intensity in training. So you can either form them into teams where they're competing against each other. So competition, yes. If you're trying to get intensity, um, you know, we'll do like I remember we had a one k row time trial, and you got everyone sitting around you, and now it's your turn, and everyone's watching, and you know the bloke that just got off the row is probably spewing in the corner. Um, but you know, that sort of stuff, that, that's where it really helps because it, it builds that, that natural competitiveness. Um, and, and that, that's the whole point. That's part of the hotbed phenomena is, is that, um, I think, you know, you, if you can beat that person that was better than you 
and then they beat you the next two times, but then you get close again and then you beat them again. Well, provided that whole nucleus is doing that the same thing, they're actually pulling away from the rest of the, the world potentially. So having that competition um, is, is really good. So you run a squad-based program. We spoke about that in your episode, Nick, when we were chatting with you by yourself. Um, obviously, Scott is involved with that. How do you combine the two? How do you combine the golf skills training and the physical training? Well, Scotty might need to help me out with this, but they basically go hand in hand in glove, don't they? So yep. um, when we do our assessments at the start of the program, um, generally a 3D biomechanical analysis is one of the first things that we'll do in a program um, such as a performance program. Um, but if we if we don't do that, then we'll still spend a decent amount of time actually taking data and you know shooting video and just getting a really good understanding for what that particular golfer is doing. And then from there, we're going to combine the swing data or the coaching data or skills testing data, whatever we have, with the physical data that somebody like Scott will, will give us. And then from there, usually I think because we've been doing this a while, for us it's really – easy to see that their technique is really a result of what they have or haven't done up until that point. And Scott, um, believe it or not, has a really large influence and a large impact on the technical development of the players. Generally, towards the end of the year, Scotty and I have a, it's not really an argument, but it's just a fun (laughs) debate about if somebody's picked up, let's say somebody's picked up 10 miles an hour in club head speed, which is Quite um, common. Without bragging, yeah, it's very common in our program. Um, we say, okay, Scott, Nick, who actually <laughs> who contributed that 10 miles an hour? How much of the 10 is the work that Scott's done and how much of it is the work that I've done? And if I'm being honest, Scott is the person that's contributed probably the most to that. He's created or helped create the athlete to be able to do that and improve the engine and then I've just – you know, come and taken the car and taken it out for a spin and made a few adjustments to it. And all of a sudden we've got a much better athletic golfer. So from our perspective, I think they, they go hand in hand in glove. What do you think, Scott? Mm. Yeah, look, I'd be willing to give you 40% of the slice. If, uh... <laughs> no, look, I've always thought it's about 50-50, to be honest, the work that you and Ryan do um, and, and the work that, that I do. But obviously, you know, and then, and then part of that is, me knowing where to train them and what they actually need, which initially was was created by by the coach and and the from the biomechanical data. So so really, you know, you take part of my fifty percent anyway initially by pointing me in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, yeah, but in a, in a sense, you know, an increase of ten percent, which is typically about ten miles an hour club head speed, would be would be pretty normal. So. Um, yeah, I mean, really, typically they're going to double their strength. They're going to increase their power by about 70 or 80%. Um, and that just gives them a lot more capacity to work within their golf swing. And a lot of them, let's say they've gone from 100 to 110 miles an hour, which is quite common. Um, but they'll also be swinging well within themselves at that 110. Um, and that, that they, the player then understands that that is such a, an important performance benefit to them on the golf course when they can swing within themselves. So. Yeah, it's uh, it's really fun. It's a really fun way to work. I love love getting specific. Probably with my program, roughly a third of it is going to be individualized, and two thirds of it's going to be sort of general. Particularly if they're all starting from a low training age, which is quite common. So there's things that we just need to do 
um, you know, to, to teach them what to do in the gym in the first place. But I always try and have around about a third of their program to be individualized. And then we, we encourage them to do that, that chunk of the program as often as they can throughout the week and, um, and potentially to be doing it before they go and, and play. And that's sort of Nick, Nick sort of, um, I remember a couple of years ago, came up with the idea of swing gym. So basically what they do to prepare their body before they play and that interconnectedness with the golf swing. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, and then, then it, a lot of that just comes down to then the player themselves and how much work they want to do, but we certainly give them all the tools they need. Yeah. I'm, sorry, Brent. Pete Cowan would certainly support this, that, you know, you, you can do a hell of a lot of technical development without actually a ball in front of you. You know, the work that you do, dry drills, you know, in front of the mirror or in the gym and the physical development work that you do in the gym is so important to, you know, raising your capacity as a golfer. I, I do want to touch quickly on that, those points you, you raised, Scotty, but um, you've got two golf coaches here. So the f- physical training may be 5% of the improvement. It's all about the golf <laughs> What are we, is it 1990 or is it 2020? If you're a field-based golfer, you don't need any physical development, so that's fine. If you're a, <laughs> if you can be as strong as you have to be. If you can't apply it in the skill skill sense, you've got to hope. So, oh, pure golf coaching made that improvement, Nick. So just come on, don't give, don't give him too much credit. I'll, I'll uh. stop paying him. I'm just happy I'm allowed to touch weights now, so that's good. We're allowed to use uh, weights with golfers, so that's a massive step forward. Thank you, gentlemen. We've come a long way. We have. It's changing. And just on you, you're talking about the, the different types of training you do with the golfers, Scott. So you said that um, you obviously start them off with a pretty generic type of program, especially if they're coming from that early training age. But mm. how does that training evolve over the course of the 12 months if they've got tournaments or stuff like that? So what type of training mm. are you doing when they're not playing tournaments and what type of training are you doing when they are playing tournaments? Yeah, so so typically the players in the program that um, that, uh, that Nick's in, in charge of, um, we generally do two sessions a week. So it'll be typically a Tuesday and a Thursday morning. Um, I'll typically start with a 10 to 15 minute warm up, which is very targeted towards what all golfing bodies need to be able to do. That's so a systemized warm up that we take them through. It's around about eight exercises that they sort of know off by heart, which worst case scenario, fallback plan, that could be a warm up for their, before they're, they're around the golf. So I kind of try and upskill them with that stuff pretty early. Um, then they go into their individualized work where they're addressing their own key area, weakness areas, um, any potential, uh, or previous injury that they might need to recondition if anything's been identified by by Jordan, the physio, for example. Um, so there'll be, you know, nearly everyone has had an injury by the time they get to the program. Um, and if not, they'll experience a niggle throughout the year at some point as their loads have increased. So there's always going to be a bit of work to be done there because if a, if, if a golf is injured or, you know, some their back's gone into spasm, they can't play. So avoiding that sort of thing is really a big priority. And then we sort of get into the back half of, of the session where we'll be doing strength and power training, but building up very gradually over, over time. So I typically have three different um, programs that they're working through, like an A, B, C. So Tuesday would be A, Thursday would be B, and then program C the next Tuesday. So we're sort of rotating. So there's enough familiarity, but enough variety that we can cover all the needs. Um, so then typically, depending on what day the tournament is on, um, we'd, we would typically, even if it's on the day 
on on the same day. If it's on the same day, we'd be looking to do things like um, basically taking them through what they should be doing um, with their body before. So a, a proper structured workout. Based, uh, sorry, warm up. A proper structured warm up. Um, we've done that a few times to see how they go, and most of them have responded really positively to that. Um, but but typically we just make sure that they're not too sore because they're pretty. Uh, the training age is quite low. They do tend to get quite sore from training, which is something that happens when you're under-trained. Um, so we just got to be a little bit careful. I just make sure that within that, if it's within 48 hours, I don't want them swinging it like a cripple. So I've got to be well-behaved, don't I, Nick? Makes sense. Makes sense. You can't, 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 can't hurt them too much. So- Not too much. So with you, Nick. So talk me through a, like a like a standard training week uh, with your golfers in the program, and then we can talk about the specifics on tournaments and stuff like that as well. But talk me through a standard training week from a golf skills perspective. Yeah, so standard training week. Uh, so we we give the the golfers aren't in the program uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So the program basically runs Monday to Thursday. Uh, so we have basically a tournament week and then we've got a non-tournament week. So probably talk about the non-tournament week because um, that's where most of the training gets done. So basically a Monday will generally start with um, a three-hour block of training in the morning, um, which will include some sort of meeting where we'll you know outline the goals and the activities and the focuses for the week. But that will generally go from, say, 9 to 12 o'clock um, and we're working through golf skills in that um, in that time frame. So we'll, we'll generally work on, but the order will change every day uh, that we do it. But we'll generally do approximately over the course of that three hours. There'll be one hour of full swing or long game. There'll be one hour of short game and one hour of putting. Um, and we'll have different activities that we'll be doing um, in each of those sessions. So for example, we might have a skill development putting program that we'll do when we're working on putting. But then the next time we do putting, we might do a competition-based program. So the difference would be skill development for putting might be something like, you know, rolling the ball um, on on your starting line at a particular speed. So you're combining basically the three skills of putting, which are green reading uh, and then line and speed. So you'd actually specifically focus on one of those at a time or combine them. At, but the competition side of it, the competition putting program will be you still want to start the ball in line with the right speed and read the green, obviously, but you, you're trying to hold it and you're actually recording the results and you might even be competing against one of the other squad members as well. So that would typically be a morning training session where it's a three-hour block and you focus on long game, short game and putting. Every afternoon, pretty much without fail, we go out on the golf course and Almost uh, never would we go out on the golf course and just play nine holes or 18 holes. When we go out and play, there's always going to be a specific theme to what we're doing. Uh, The theme could be building the toolbox, as in you've got to go out and we're going to take two clubs extra on the approach to the green. So let's say you're 115 metres out and you normally hit a pitching wedge. Sorry, you can't use a pitching wedge. You've got to use an eight iron. So it's two clubs above whatever you were going to use. So you're going to work on that skill of, you know, taking speed off, hitting it through a different window, hitting a knockdown shot, hitting a high fade or whatever it calls for to try and get that eight iron to go that reduced distance. So that'll typically change um, in every session that we do. Um, 
So when we're on the course, we're either looking to build the skill or we're actually looking to try and um, build the strategy and the tactics and the, the competition side of it. So it's, it's very, I wouldn't say we do this every session, but quite frequently what we'll do is actually print a yardage book off. So let's just say we're playing the front nine of, of the golf course. We will actually photocopy and print out the yardage book for the for the course that we're playing. And then what they're going to do prior to the round is actually set a game plan. So they're going to get a, a colored pen. It might be a black pen, for example. And on the first hole, they're going to draw, okay, I'm going to do a draw shot to this particular target area. They'll draw a circle. And then my approach from here is going to be to this section of the green. So they're going to, as best as they can, try and you know, plan the hole uh, before they actually go out and play it. Ideally, they do it in reverse if they can actually see where the pin is and have any knowledge on that. And then as they're playing from there, what they're going to do is draw what actually happens. So it might be like a dotted line with a red pen or a black pen. And you can see the difference. You can say, right, was this a skill breakdown? You tried to hit a draw, but you actually hit a block fade out onto the out onto the other fairway. Or was it a strategy issue? Did you think this was going to happen, but it actually didn't happen? You misjudged the wind or you misjudged the pin location or whatever it is. So we're always making sure that when we're going out on the golf course, we're actually we're changing it up. Um, so I gave a lot of detail there, and I know we only just covered what Monday is, but basically that pattern kind of re- repeats throughout the week. So a Tuesday runs on the exact same format, but we'll have a gym session in the morning. and that. It can end up being quite a, a long day. You know, we might start in the gym at say seven thirty or seven forty-five, and generally train through to somewhere close to nine o'clock. They'll have a thirty-minute turnaround to shower and have something to eat, and then we're into the training from there. And we'll still finish at the same time later on in the day, which is generally between sort of three thirty, four o'clock, that sort of range. So it's quite a long day, particularly if they're going and doing the gym in the morning. Wednesday is basically a mirror of. Uh, Monday, but the activities do change up. So we're still doing uh, skill-based training in the morning and then on course in the afternoon. And Thursday is the same as Tuesday. So it's gym in the morning um, and then skill-based training and then on course. Sometimes we'll even play the, the club competition on the Thursday as well. So that's that's an out-of-competition week. And I know I've been talking for a while. And then the difference, the difference though in – a competition-based week is we peel back all of the training that we do and then their only role in a competition week is to prepare for the round of golf. So they need to get to the golf course in good time and warm up properly, play the round of golf and then do whatever remedial work they need to do after the round. So when we're training, a training week, we're focusing on training and getting better. When we're competing, we have a week where we're competing and we're focusing on doing the best we can in the competition. Makes sense. Makes sense. I'm going to throw some coaching questions at you, Nick, because I'm interested with that with that training week, so to speak. So, what type of post round practice do you suggest that your players do when they're playing in a tournament? So, it won't be anything extensive. Um, probably the the concern that we have after they've played around a golf is gen- generally they're probably going to be about probably at least six hours into their golf day as it is. So they've probably, you know, left, let's say they've left half an hour, an hour before um, they need to arrive at the golf course. They've had a decent warm-up. It's going to go anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour and 15. They've played a competition round of golf, might be between four and five hours. 
So we have to be really careful if they're going to do practice after they play. We have to be really mindful of that fatigue factor that sets in there. So if they're going to be doing technique work, they're not going to do a lot of it because they need to be aware that their body is absolutely shot from the round of golf and the warm-up and all that sort of stuff that they've just done. So we might only prescribe something like 30 to 45 minutes and they can work on whatever really troubled them during that particular round of golf. So generally as golfers, we walk off the golf course, we're not too excited or thrilled with how we played. So there's going to be something that's really got to us throughout the round. It might be pitching, it might be putting. So you can give somebody 30 to 45 minutes, just just go and iron out the kinks on whatever that particular thing is. But they need to make the decision. Is it going to be a skill development thing or is it going to be a technique thing that they need to work on? You know, did they just struggle to execute a particular shot when they were uh, on the golf course in competition? If that's the case, don't go and try and rebuild the swing after the round. Just go and try and fine-tune the little thing you had to do with that particular shot that you were hitting. If you found that your technique is really falling apart or you're in a heavy technical phase, then by all means, go and spend that 30 to 45 minutes after the round and actually work on the, the technique and try and improve things for the next day. So it does just, just depend. I, I must admit, I don't like seeing you know golfers spending hours and hours on the practice field after they've played, but there is a time and a place for that. I mean, I'm a big believer in just doing what it takes. So if you're an up-and-coming golfer and you've gone out in a tournament and you've shot, let's say you've shot 78 after the first round, um, it doesn't make any sense to me to go back to the hotel room and just lick your wounds and just go, oh, I'll try and do better tomorrow. You know, go and practice after the round and actually have have something and try and build yourself back up, give yourself something that you can actually go and implement for the next round. Can it, can it work from a coaching perspective that a, a session of if they've gone out and had a really bad day and really struggled on the golf course and they've got no confidence whatsoever, they've hit it sideways, they've really struggled, can a – half-hour session on the range of pure block practice where they're just using a 7-iron, for example, one club, and they'll start to strike it better just to the just due to the fact that they're hitting the same shot over and over again. Can that boost those confidence in that player for that, that upcoming round? Yeah, it certainly can, but I would argue that that's not real confidence. Um, it's certainly better than nothing at all. You, you, in that case you just described there, you, you would want to rebuild your confidence if you had a bad round. And, you know, hitting 57 irons is better than nothing. You know, I'd prefer a bit more of a, a staggered approach where you might do 15 minutes of technique at the start of the session just to uh, confirm or reiterate what you're trying to do. But then you try and get back into the skills side of it and try and build yourself back up from there. So confidence isn't something that you tell yourself. It's not a magic pill. It's a process. Um, yeah, I've always been fascinated with the challenge that you guys have as a coach um, and and I guess the players where if they're sort of halfway through that swing transition of working on something different and they might be just starting to get a little bit more comfortable with it in their practice on the range, that sort of thing, Where which swing to take out on the golf course, you know, if there happens to be a competition that week and they're sort of between swings, I always find that really fascinating. <laughs> And the different approaches that players can take where some will just go, whatever happens on the day is what happens. And that's, that's, that's what it is. Maybe my swing's slightly different every day anyway. Or maybe there's players that are good enough to get out there and actually 
maybe just work on that swing with a single thought or two during the round. But what's your sort of general advice on that when, you know, clearly the new swing isn't bedded in yet, but maybe it's maybe it's a part of the process. What, what's your take? Uh, so my take on that would be you just got to do the best with what you've got on that particular day. Um, some golfers are really good at getting their hands dirty and playing with like a, a really strong technical thought um, and they're able to perform quite well. Um, but I would say for most people, just play with whatever you have on that particular day. So in the process of doing your warm up, understand what the ball is doing and then you try and just play within those parameters um, throughout the day and try and score the best you can with what you've got. Um, and this is a bit of a, a side topic, but one thing that I try and do as best as I can when I'm coaching is try not to make strong technical changes early in the process. So if a new golfer comes to me um, and they have a reasonable level of talent, I want to make sure that they understand why their swing works the way it does. And I want them to understand the bottom of their swing. So when we go in and actually make changes to their swing, they know and understand what they need to do with how whatever their swing is feeling to get the ball to go where it needs to go. And I think that's a trait of the best players in the world in that they might be working on something in their swing, but the bottom of their swing, their understanding and their, their feel of what's going on through impact is so well refined that they're able to play on days where it's not feeling that great. You know, they'll walk off the golf course and say, yeah, I didn't play that well, but I had 68. That's because their understanding of what they're doing is so good. Whereas if you go and change something really quickly and the golfer doesn't have that understanding of the bottom of the swing, then they can lose form really quickly and they're unable to play um, with that technical thought. And that's where you get a lot of friction in making the change. Mm-hmm. Um, when somebody doesn't, doesn't understand the fine-tuning movements that they need to do within the parameters of the swing change, um, you get a lot of friction that way because they'll, they'll go into this pattern of, hey, it's your swing, it's not my swing. When I do your swing, I shoot <laughs> I shoot 78. But it's it's not like that. It's just I'm giving you information, you're filtering it and interpreting it and just adding it to the mix of what you're already doing. And it's up to that golfer to figure out the little fine-tuning adjustments they need to make as they're going. Yeah, I'd throw in my little my little two cents there too. The thing that I really encourage, particularly with the 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 warm up part of the the um, my physical program, and maybe the third, which is which is individualized to their restrictions and their needs, is typically once they have done that twenty to thirty minutes, their body is going to be a lot more coachable, I guess, and consistent. And that sometimes if players aren't uh, particularly well organized with their physical routines, the reason the swing might escape them on a given day could be physical. There, there could be some limitations or some differences in their body that weren't there two days ago when they played really well and things are just not quite matching up. It's an extra challenge. If a player can lose confidence quickly, you know, all of a sudden they can be on the slippery slope, whereas it could have been averted potentially by just making sure their body is working properly. And part of the warm up um, that I give them is to sort of self identify what might be different in their body on that day that needs to be addressed. So I think that's that's ultimately where part of where I want to take a player is to be able to maintain their own body so that it doesn't become the coach's fault <laughs> that they hit it poorly on that given day. It, it, it certainly does. It's it's important for those golfers to be conscious of how they feel each day when they turn up on that range and 
that's going to have an impact on how they swing. And just to go on to your point there, Nick, about playing with what they've got on the day, I'm certainly in that same camp. If it's not working and that's a certain ball flight on that day, that's what you're playing with. And I think that's important too as a as a player to have a plan. So you've got a plan for the day that everything's working well and the ball flight's what you want it to be. But you've got to have that secondary plan to go back to on that day where you turn up to the driving range and it doesn't feel right and it's not working. You've got to have that secondary plan to go back to so you can still get that score on the board. Yeah, I mean, from a talent development perspective, like that, having that plan B, plan C, plan D, that's so important. Like we see uh, so many golfers who have a really large spread between their scores. So one of the one of the scores that we track, or one of the data points that we track, is the difference between the high round and the low round. And the best players in the world have that high high low combination down to about ten strokes. So that means that their low might be 62 and their high might be 72. For the developing golfer, the difference between low and high might be 20 strokes and it might be 75 to 95 or it might be 70 to 90. And that gets back to what you were saying there, Brent, where it's plan A or bust, Mm. where they need to have all these different contingencies in place, these different swing fields that they can go to or a particular ball flight that they can go to to try and get the ball around the golf course. It's really important. It's so many players that just don't have that have that secondary plan to go back to. It's just if it's feeling good that day, they're great. If it's not, then they as you said, they have that big gap between their big and their their good score and their high score. Which well, is not a good thing. Uh, I've lost count of how many golfers come to me and say, I just want to be consistent. <laughs> well you need to be consistent in your approach to the game to be consistent with your output. Um and isn't it interesting, it comes back to that thing we're talking about, how do you actually make a skill stable? Well, you need to actually be able to do it in different ways. Yeah. And, um, you know, so consistency, I think the average person on the street would think that means I've got to be um, repetitive like a robot and eradicate all, all variants. But in a way, it's the variance that allows it to be stable. So you've got plan A, plan D, plan B, plan C, plan D, and having those different contingencies, which are actually adaptable and, and varying from the, the, the good day, is what actually keeps the scores reasonably consistent. Mm. It's When you think about it, it's really impressive what a tour player does, isn't it? How they are on a plane every week to a different place, and they've got basically two days to wash their clothes and get their game in order to be able to tee it up well on the Thursday, and their score variance is very, very low. So mm. they're able to adapt to the different scenario and the different feel in the body, the different golf course so well and so much better than that developing player, and that's that's why they do what they do. That's why they're the best in the world. Very true. Now, you spoke about um, and we spoke about having flexibility on the golf course, being able to adapt to change. What about you, Scotty? How much flexibility do you give your athletes from a physical training perspective if they turn up and they don't feel right that day? Do you give them that chance to to tweak their training or is it not too bad just do it this way? You mean into my sessions? Yeah. Yeah. So, so typically early on in the program and working with any player that I work with, we want to identify what their main limitations are and, and that includes previous injury. Um, and so then I give them typically three or four activities to address each of those, those bad spots in their body. And that may not have come from me. It may have come from the physio, what, whatever it needs to be. And that'll be, it's going to be a, a, um, a mobility exercise. There could be a stretch in there, particularly if it's a... Um, an assisted stretch or a resisted stretch. Um, and then we're going to have probably 
one or two, maybe three different strengthening activities to make sure that joint actually functions properly. So if they show up and then they come in and they're pointing at a body part with a look on their face that says, I also don't want to train that hard today. Um, I go, well, that's fine, mate. You know what you need to do. And more importantly, when did you start to feel this? Oh, it hit me on Saturday. So, well, it's now Tuesday. You knew what to do. Why isn't it fixed? Um, now, it could be that it needs more help from someone else. But, um, you know, if uh, basically, they, they, I want them to have the tools that they need to be able to uh, do maintenance on the run and to be able to service their own car, essentially. Um, but yeah, we, we will adapt the, their training. Um, if we're lucky, we might be able to sort of fix them in the first half of the session and they can jump in. That can happen sometimes. Um, but yeah, no, we, we'll adapt. If, if someone's uh, injured, we've got to get them uninjured as quickly as we can. It's I always find it challenging with what you do, Scott, to identify the snowflake <laughs> in terms of when they come in, are, do they just not want to train or they're just feeling that they don't want to do it? Or is there generally something going on? Like, I think a lot of people will be cruising around with, you know, a 0.5 out of 10 niggle. But should that should that change the way they train? I'm not too, sometimes I'm not too sure about that. Sometimes, I, if I just speak from my own perspective, sometimes you're better off just going in and training the way you're you feel better to train. Afterwards. And yeah. you feel better afterwards just for doing it. Um, I, you know, I've had some great sessions where I didn't feel that great going into it. And then you train, you're like, gee, I'm glad I did that. I feel much better after I've gone and done. I'm glad I didn't talk myself out of it. And you, you, Absolutely. you build that you build that resilience and that skill of actually going in and finishing the job on something when you didn't think you were going to. Well, the, snow, the snowflake thing really does come down to the actions. And the thing is, if they know what to do, and the last two or three days they've been walking around with that niggle and they haven't done what they know they need to do, well, there's your snowflake. Mm. So, <laughs> and uh, we need to, we need to teach them, you know, not to not to melt so easily. Um, but but yeah, I totally agree. And look, I, I try and build um, injury prevention into the program. So we'll have a lot of, for example, with shoulders, we have a lot of rotator cuff work that's in it. We tend to do that in the early part of the, the warm up. So if there was a niggle there. By the time they get to the point where they're ready to actually do some loaded compound movements, that niggle may have gone. And probably probably half the time, the early part of the program will sort out the niggle anyway. So we make it, we give it every chance. Mm. Um, but, you know, look, you know, we're yet to have a year where we haven't had people with, with injuries that have put them out for a week or two in terms of they've had to modify their training. But really, the, the great thing, I guess, the way I try and set it up is that they still have to come in because they need to address the injury. Mm. So, you know, we've got different gears that we can use. Um, not not turning up and, and not having good intentions never going to never gonna help anyone. So, look, yeah, we're pretty lucky. I've always been pretty happy with the effort that the athletes that I try and put in. So Yeah, just at the risk of pumping up your tyres, Scott, I, I don't think we, we don't lose many weeks a year to, to injury for our players. I think for the most part they're always in their training there might be the odd modification here and there, but I can count on one hand the number of times we've actually had a player sit out from all activity for a period of two weeks. Yeah. It just yeah. it just doesn't, no, it happen. doesn't happen. And when you think about it, you know, in our program we have relatively untrained athletes, so I think it's a it's a credit to your programming and what you do that you're able to steer these athletes through. Got to use athletes in air quotes, don't you? If they're not training too much, but that you're able to steer these. Need to identify as an athlete. Yeah, <laughs> you're, you're able to steer these athletes through 
the first one or two years of their physical training. The training age is very low. Which is the hardest. It is the hardest. It's when they're at their most vulnerable. Um, But, you know, I'd have to, uh, you know, return serve there and say that the the coaching and actually giving giving them a swing. I mean, the average uh, experienced PGA coach now, from what I can tell, has a pretty good handle on how a golf swing could potentially be injuring the player as well. So actually getting them technically more sound and, and being able to sort of connect the dots with, with any niggles that they might have, when realistically, particularly once they get to our program, if they're going to get sore, it, it mostly is from playing golf, um, which shouldn't happen, but it does happen. So it's that combined and integrated approach that seems to get the job done, I think. Yeah, really cool. Um, we spoke a bit with you, Scotty, earlier on about um, getting kids involved with, with strength training and you answered that question really well. So just to you, Nick, um, obviously in that, in that performance program that you're, you've got going at the moment, um, they've got pretty high exposure to competitions. How early should golfers get exposed to some sort of competition? Is it, is it something that should happen straight away with junior golfers or is it something that you uh, bring in over time? Yeah, I think you bring it in over time. It wouldn't be something that I'd introduce straight away. Um, I think before you introduce competition, and just for the sake of this discussion, I'll say competition would be going to an external golf course and playing with other golf with other golfers in a in a organised competition. That's how we'll deem competition for this. Um, yeah, I wouldn't rush to do it early on. I'd just make sure that the golfer still is having a lot of fun. They're really passionate about golf. And then once they show a bit of an interest in competing and maybe playing some different golf courses, then I would introduce the competition aspect. But having said that, I still wouldn't be in a rush to get them to be playing, you know, stroke play off the off the back tees. I'll, I'll be using all of the the junior competitions that are available to us off the, you know, the shortened tees from, you know, 100 metres, 150, 200 metres, playing with kids their, their own age and just still enjoying the fact that they're out there having fun, I think that's really important. Um, it's a bit of an issue in golf development space, I think, that I don't think it's coaches too much, but I think it's more parents and, and athletes are far too quick to try and push themselves through the um, through the, the development space or through the competition pathway in that they haven't even – I don't want to talk about winning, but I will. You know, they, they wouldn't have won a junior tournament but then all of a sudden they're stepping up to a state-based competition or they haven't had a top 10 in a state-based competition and they think it's a good idea to go and play the national championships. You know, they really have to try and take a staggered approach and try and have as much fun as they can and try and win and perform as best as they can at the level that they're at and then earn the right to go up and compete from there. Yeah, completely agree with that. It's, it is hard and it's hard to, to deal with parents sometimes and just – bring that back down to that understanding that they, they have to progress at their own pace. It isn't about being at a certain stage at a certain age. It can take, it can, it, it can take some time and you've got to make sure that they're progressing in a safe way. I think as well in this space that everybody assumes that a, a young, talented golfer wants to go on the tour. It's okay to be an 18-year-old off a single-figure handicap that just loves playing the game and has no aspirations to take it further. Um, what it's it shouldn't be an all or bust mentality, which I think it's probably it seems like a bit of a problem to me from a parenting space and and from a youth development space is that it seems to be this all or nothing approach where it is okay to play the Saturday competition and just have fun with your mates and be off a good handicap. 
arguably easier to have a good career as a as a, a you know professional job space and play golf on the side and be a very and then to try and turn pro and be a successful tour player as we mm. as we're conscious of it's it's pretty tough to to jump from single figure golfer to to tour standard golfer well there's an interesting side to this as well and um i know mark holland's name has come up a few times in this podcast but um or past podcasts we should say but We've had people in our program, and I know in some of the elite development programs as well, where they'll go through the program and they don't end up playing golf at the end of it. Mm. Um, that's not necessarily a bad thing because it means that they've sampled the higher levels of the sport and they've just realised that it's not for them, and that's that's completely okay as well. Like just because somebody doesn't go on to be a world class, you know, top one hundred player in the world, doesn't mean that it's a failure um, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, being an elite golfer, it's a hard thing, and people work out that they might like the idea of it, but it's not—it's not for everybody. Not everybody's cut out to be that good. Mm. Or wants to live, uh, you know, in a because effectively they're starting their own small business when they become a tour player, aren't they? Now, you know, there are many different small businesses that you could potentially open up, um, and being a, a tour player is one of them. But it does involve being away from home for twenty-five to thirty weeks of the year, lots and lots of travel. Uh, it's very individual, um, not necessarily, it's not, you don't get that sort of team, uh, the benefits of some team sports. Um, so, you know, you've got to be accepting and willing to take all of that on board, which might be quite different to, you know, a, a young amateur playing competitions on the weekend. It, it's a different, it's a very different dynamic overall, isn't it? Yeah. And I know we've spoken a bit about, you know, talent hotbeds, but I think one thing that as coaches we need to help our players with is the solidarity of practice and the loneliness of being an elite athlete. Um, You can't be in a position where you have to have your team around you or your mates around you all the time to be able to perform well and to be able to go and practice. There's many, many, many hours uh, where you just have to enjoy your own company. It's you on the practice fairway with a problem to solve and you have to enjoy that side of it. And if you don't, you're not going to make it very far in this game. I just had a thought. There, there is actually ways you can profile for that sort of stuff. I mean, the Maya Briggs and there's different um, personality profiling that you can use for human resource management for, to determine what sort of jobs people are actually suited to. And it just, it just struck me then that there's certain personality types that would find what you just described as heaven. You know, that's exactly what they want. And then there's other people where that would just sound terrible. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's interesting, different things that we look for when we're profiling and trying to identify traits, but, um, you know, you've got to like being the, the lone wolf. You've got to enjoy that. Yeah. Well, I know Golf Australia through their athlete profiling at that elite level, they found that probably the biggest problem that their athletes have is loneliness. Mm. So it's, you're right. It's something that, you know, we need to screen for and we need to make sure that the golfers have the tools to be able to deal with that. Um, when they're away for extended periods of time, or even if they're just practicing um, at home, like I know the the recent uh, COVID nineteen pandemic has probably ended a lot of careers. Um, there'll be plenty of uh, athletes or plenty of tour players out there that have stayed at home for a period of six months, and they realise that hey, I I like being at home. This uh, golf tour thing it seemed pretty good, but it's not as it's not that good. I'm just gonna I'm done. I'm just going to stay home now. That that's me. I'm going to go get a different job. So amazing. It, 
Yeah. Wow. Just because they don't like that solidarity and the loneliness aspect of being an elite athlete. Makes sense. Makes sense. Well, gents, I think we could continue on for this for a long time, but we're kind of getting to the end of our time, so we might uh, wrap it up there. What I'm thinking is I might get you back individually to do more of a like a periodization type chat, and we can come at it from a golf coaching perspective with you, Nick, and a physical perspective with you, Scott, and sure. talk about how we set up like a 12-month plan for a high-performance player and then what you can bring from that um, that type of training into your average Joe as well, I think you can. I think some of the principles can certainly be used with the average players as well. So that might be a conversation we can have um, as we go into future episodes. But again, thank you so much for your conversation today. Um, would love to hear from the coaches out there and get their feedback on what we spoke about and what other topics you want to hear from. So you can find me on Twitter at Coaching Pod and on Instagram and Facebook at Coaching Uncovered. And you can add yourself to Scotty's Facebook group, which is? Golf Performance Science. If you're not a Russian robot, you're in. So you can sign yourself up to that one and you can share the conversation there with us. You'll find us on there and um, we can continue chatting there. So again, gents, thank you so much for your time today. Certainly appreciate it. And we'll definitely catch up again soon. Thanks, Brent. Thanks, Brent. Thanks, Brent.